Howdy friends, and welcome back to the Tyro Experience. My guest today is Noah Ryan, host of the Noah Ryan podcast, martial artist, and scientifically literate content creator. Noah shares how he changed the paradigm from ADHD to hunter type, how hunter types can leverage their temperament to thrive in the modern world, why he wants to be like the Dos Equis guy, how our environment impacts our mind, why minimalism works, the power of martial arts, his favorite books, the best and worst advice he's ever received, why we should sprint toward the life that we want to live, and a whole lot more. If you find any value in this conversation, consider sharing the podcast as well as leaving a rating or review. You can also follow along on Instagram, Twitter, and subscribe on YouTube at Tyro Nolan. Thank y'all. I appreciate everybody that takes the time to even listen to one episode, 10 episodes, whatever it is. I really appreciate y'all. It was an honor to sit down with Noah. I hope y'all enjoy. Yeah, dude, I mean, I just, I can't, when, it, when I schedule shit, it's just annoying. I'd much rather just get it out of the way. And like I'm saying, yeah. like, I like doing podcasts. Like it's my favorite thing to do. But like, I hate having the anticipation of waiting for things. So I'm like, can we do 30 minutes? Let's do it. But uh, yeah, dude, thank yeah, you for I having me on. It, I appreciate it. Dude, I got, it's kind of a funny story. So you've been kind of one of the guests that I've been wanting to have on for a, for a while. And I was speaking with Ryan Ayala the other day on the on the podcast and i was like yeah like i, I want to ask Noah to come on but i want to make sure i can provide some value i want to make sure i'm like at like a point where it's gonna be valuable to him and he's like dude just ask him so i sent that video you're like let's do it so it's yeah. kind of funny how that worked out yeah it is it is pretty funny i realized the same thing when i started my podcast because i started it when i was pretty, relatively small and i was asking these big guys i was asking these big guys like phil derue was one of my first guests and Phil Drew, I don't know if you know him, but he is a strength and conditioning coach for a lot of MMA fighters, Dustin Poirier, among the likes. And guy's incredible. You know, I've been looking up to him forever. I had no, I had like 7,000 followers on Twitter. I, I didn't, I didn't post a single episode of my podcast. He's like, let's run it. And I was like, oh <laughs> shit. And then once you do that, it's just this incredible snowball effect because that gives you that legitimacy. It's like, okay, cool. This guy has people on his pod that are like real people. So I'm going to be yeah. more keen to come on as well. 100%. You also, the, the more you get into the space, at least my experience, like especially esoteric Twitter, it's like, holy shit, everybody knows everybody. So for example, I'm talking to Harry Gray the other day. Um, and I mentioned you or something about the hunter type, uh, temperament. And he's like, Oh, Noah stayed with us for a month. I'm like, dude, everybody here knows everybody, <laughs> which is really, really cool. It is. And that's the beauty of Twitter and our space on Twitter in particular. It's very like, it's not as much top down like most social media platforms are, right? TikTok and Instagram, you're an influencer and you're talking to all the consumers. On these platforms, it's oftentimes just a lot of guys, a lot of people that know each other quite well. They're creating content for one another and then they have their other audience. But like it's so much more horizontal. It keeps people in check. If someone starts doing crazy stuff, like it's like having those friends that are going to tell you like, yo, stop doing this shit. You know, other platforms don't have that, which is why we see influencers on other platforms go crazy, lose touch with reality, as opposed to here, like everyone's more grounded, I would say. 100%. It's like a self-cleaning oven almost. It's almost like a, (laughs) it's like, it's almost like a self-sufficient economy. I was actually thinking about this this morning because have you ever seen that meme where it's like, or GIF where people are just throwing the water bottles across the table back and forth? I haven't seen that. Okay, well, the, the idea is that like, that's kind of what Twitter, esoteric Twitter does supporting each other's brands, like somebody has a brand, 
and they'll just yes. buy other people's shit and then they buy other people's shit. So it's like the same money just getting transferred, which I think is so cool. Bro, it's so true. I love it. Like we really do have a self-sufficient ecosystem here. Everybody's helping each other out. Everybody gets so hyped when there's a new product. There's no stepping on toes. Like we know the market's huge. And like, you know, that's what I do. I, I work with health brands. So like having all these health brands being in existence around me is the most exciting thing ever. It's it's so awesome. It gives anybody yeah. in this space such a, such a head start. And all of its brands that are pushing forward the missions that we all align with too. That's the most important part. Right. So with these brands winning, you know, we win hypothetically. No one's going to come on to health Twitter and bring out like a polyester underwear line. Right. Like that's just not going to happen because that doesn't align with the values here. So by supporting these brands that are growing on Twitter, you are supporting the values that we all kind of unanimously agree on and bringing those to mass market. And we've seen it possible before. Look at Van Man. Van Man's like a legitimate mass market brand. Look at their Instagram. Right. Their mm -hmm. Instagram, I think he almost has like half a million followers on there. So it's possible. It's realistic. A lot of brands have been built on Twitter. It's wild because I started following Van Man on Instagram. I want to say when he had 7,000 followers because I played baseball in college and I was looking at like NIL deals, just shooting my shot with like, I hit up like Yeti. I hit up some dumb company that like that would never have like, I was not by all intents and purposes. I was not like a big time athlete. But I hit up Van Man and he like looked up my stats and sent me a message back. So we were kind of chopping it back and forth. And then I looked, I want to say like a year later and he's at like 250,000. I'm like, what the fuck happened? Like Buddy just blew up, which is so cool to see. Oh, it's so awesome to see. Yeah, I grew fast. His business model is so clean. It's really great because, you know, so many people mess this up when they first start a brand. They think it needs to be really perfect. It needs to be perfect cookie cutter, CPG or whatever it may be to appeal to a mass audience. But I think one of the reasons that Van Man blew up so effectively was the fact that his brand was so, it told the story, right? Then the story was like, hey, I'm a guy in a van that I'm making these, you know, tallow and toothbrush and like this tallow and toothpaste. And that's that. Like, I don't have fancy branding. I don't have fancy anything. Like I'm making this toothpaste. And that was the story. That was the marketing there because that's what people wanted as opposed to the overly polished Colgate and things like that. It was like a counter signal. It was a counter statement. So like he was taking what he was and he was just finding a way to leverage that without having to like make it all flashy and selling. I think a lot of people miss out on that. Yeah. It's like anti-establishment and the, what's the word? The level of clarity that you have about the brand is so much higher or sharp compared to like the Colgate example. Like you have no idea top down what Colgate looks like from a corporation standpoint. But then you look at Van Man, it's literally just like, oh, it's yes. a guy in a van. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. And you can tell through his marketing. Marketing looks like something a guy in a van would make. Saying that very nicely. And he's that's, also that's so supportive too. Mm -hmm. Like he like he he basically created the tallow market, but he's also he like doesn't try to take other tallow companies out. He's like, everybody's got to get their shit in. Yeah, no, I gained a lot of respect for him when he was like saying that. He's like, yo, the market's so huge. He also knows like he's crushing it, dude. Like he is yeah. so winning. He's already like absolutely crushing it up paid. So yeah, he, he has no fear. I don't think he's going to be weeded out of the market anytime soon. Yeah. Well, uh, I mean, we've already kind of got into it. But so I want to say thank you for coming on. Firstly, Noah, I, pre I appreciate you taking the time. This is a super hunter type uh, podcast. <laughs> Yeah, dude. Like um, I said, thank you for having me on. It's it's a, it's an honor, man. The for people that don't know, who is Noah Ryan, and 
where, how did you get to where you are from where you were and where you were being however far back you want to go? Like who is Noah Ryan? Oh yeah. That's, that's a really good and and broad question. (laughs) Um, you know, I, I'm a kid. I grew up in Minnesota uh, or in the North. I probably should say where I grew up. I grew up, I grew up in the Midwest in Minnesota. And um, I found that life was always very, I was thinking about it this morning. I, I think that for me, life was very monotonous and, and very boring. It was like everything that I did was just, was quite boring and it didn't really stimulate me to the level that I wanted to be stimulated. And there were a few things that would always kind of get me really excited. A lot of that being nature, being like going out and doing crazy things, like going really fast on a jet ski and kind of like exploring animals and stuff like that. But anyway, like I almost had this, you know, always this disdain of like, there's, there's more to this life. There's, there's something that I need to be pursuing. And, um, I was very hard nosed about that. Like I was very hard nosed about having a life that was completely different than everybody else's. And, um, I, I would made that very clear. And I liked school. I thought school was great. You know, I thought college was great. Um, but then you kind of give up that, that dream in college a little bit, I find at least. And you look at what opportunities you have in front of you. So, um, you know, I always started my own business, but in college, you're kind of told like, what are your options? And the main option for anyone who wants to be quote unquote different is the startup scene, right? Technology. And I got gaslit into this idea that you need to ride the coattails of opportunities, even if they don't align with who you are. Right. Just because that's what the opportunity is. That's where the real money is to be made. So, you know, I spent a while in uh, cybersecurity. I was building a software, threat intelligence software, Um, you know, really put my heart and soul into it. I leveled up incredibly. And I think it was one of the best things I ever did because the levels at which I had to perform to even compete in that in that niche was pretty absurd. But anyway, you know, COVID hit, got bored of that as well. And like you hit the threshold point where it's like, I learned enough of what I want to learn. Like, this isn't what I'm going to do. I don't care how much money is in this industry. I would rather be, you know, dirt broke living the life that I want to live. I think that's an impetus that a lot of people have, but a lot of people don't take. So anyway, uh, bailed out on that. Tried to figure my way out. Had a few things fall through. Almost took a a job with another startup. Like that's how how close, close I was to giving up. And obviously that wouldn't have been the end of the world. It was actually a great job very early stage. Um, but anyway, that fell through and, you know, slowly tiered my way to kind of start working with agencies, then build my own agency, support this lifestyle to be able to kind of go and like live on the beach and quite literally do the Tim Ferriss for our work week. Um, and, you know, finally getting to that point and then being like, okay, cool. Like I made it, like, what's the next step now? And then that's kind of where I started to really hone in on the health stuff, I would say. Anyway, (laughs) that was such a tough question. I really haven't articulated that, but that's kind of the flow of where I got to where I am now. Yeah, I found that I like asking origin stories because number one, it gives me context and the people listening context. But for your sake, a lot of people have this like picture of their story, but nobody ever really articulates it until you're asked, right? So it's kind of an interesting exercise for the person that is asked because you have to kind of delineate what, Oh, what, what did that do? Why did this lead to this? And et cetera. So Mm -hmm. I think that's a unique story. I, I have perhaps the reason that I've aligned with your message and and your content and the hunter type reframe so heavily is because I was, I relate to that a lot, man. Like I I had ADHD, took Ed Zinnis seven years every day. And I was actually just talking to my uncle this morning about why I, I started taking at Zenis and it was because I was in a fucking basement classroom for seven hours a day, listening to a fat teacher talk about shit I didn't care about as a 13 year old boy with no natural light, no windows. And I had trouble focusing. And to me, looking back, I'm like, no shit. 
<laughs> but yeah. for some reason, the medical system nowadays is like, here, let's take a fucking amphetamine. Um, yeah, well, that's so. Good. I'm glad that you bring it up. The hunter type side. Yeah, so so that's that's actually what I was going to ask is, when did you become aware of that temperament? Like the, or let me think about how to ask that. When did you kind of name it the hunter type, or when did you kind of start perceiving it as that, as opposed to the ADHD, maybe more negatively con, uh, conceived or perspective? Yeah, that's a that's a really good question because for me, I always, I wouldn't say I always struggled um, as a kid, but there was always something getting in my way just of, of functioning, functioning normally. And I see this to be the case with a lot of people with ADHD and a lot of people who are quote unquote hunter types is that they know that they're different. They know that they're capable. They know that they're competent. And a lot of them know that they're special, but to function and perform the way that everyone else is functioning and performing, it's like nails on a chalkboard, right? It's like, it's like ripping off your fingernails one by one. So I noticed that because, you know, you go in early and I was a very hyperactive kid. You go into the doctor's office. So they do the ADHD testing. And I was so hyperactive. I jumped on like the, the table that they have you sit on and I fell and I scraped my leg. I'm like, okay, that kid has ADHD. Get him on meth immediately. Right. So I never, I never took the ADHD medication. To be honest, I took the ADHD medication more in college just to like, you know, just to stay up and for the euphoric component of it. But I never took the ADHD medication. They give you extra time on tests. I never took extra time on tests because I was always the first one done with tests. So it would never stood right with me of them saying you have a disorder, you need to be medicated. When it's like I'm outperforming a lot of people that are like that are the poster children, right? You're trying to give me these these benefits and these pageantries, and I don't need them, right? Because I've just found my own way to approach things. So even in the beginning, I'm like, there's more to this. I know that this thing that is causing me these struggles is also the thing that's going to lead to me being different. Right. And that was the whole thing about having to be different. A lot of that was brought on the fact that like, I was just different, right? Like you don't meld and all of the other hunter types around me were all medicated zombies on amphetamines. Right. So they were killing themselves biologically. They were, you know, essentially ransacking their dopaminergic system just to perform averagely. And I'm in a similar boat, right? I grew up in the Midwest. It's dark. Most of the year it's cold. Um, my parents, were very focused on education uh, because, you know, they came from backgrounds where education is, is how you succeed, right? You know, my, like coming from uh, like a, a refugee from, you know, Iran and then, then the other side being like, you know, one guy that went to school and anyway, school is really important. Sports was not. So I really like didn't sports was a big component of my life, but it wasn't like the core component of my life. I was always getting injured as well. And, um, you know, you kind of just start piecing things together and realizing that like, hmm, there's certain areas where I perform really well effortlessly. And I learned that really early on. It's like when I'm having fun, when I'm just going about it, things are effortless and I perform better than anybody. <clears throat> In college, you know, same thing. I kind of found my own approach to getting good grades. I found my own approach to performing well. Um, and I liked school because I just reinvented the game for like my proclivities. It wasn't until I graduated college and I was in like a really high performing requirement uh, area, you know, in the startup world that I needed to level up because before with high school and with college, there's a very specific bar that you have to hit. As long as you get good grades, that's fine. You don't need to do any more effort. So just hack your hack your way to get getting good grades, do whatever you need to do to, to get good grades. And then after that, you can go and you can you can mess around. Right. Like. I just did that. Uh, but in the real world, there's no threshold, right? Unless you have a very structured job where it says just hit this quota and you're done. 
there's no threshold, right? The sky's the limit. You get out what you put in. And I knew I needed to put more in because I kind of shot myself in the foot of like making things too easy in school. So that's when I really needed to figure out how I worked and how I operated. So it was during COVID and everyone else was kind of off doing their fun things. I knew that I needed this major revamp and essentially this rebrand of who I am. And I need to upskill, which is what I call it. You have to upskill because the person I was then is not going to be the person that's going to get me to where I want to be. So I spent, you know, almost a year just in total isolation. It was during COVID. I would see my friends occasionally, but I was just working, you know, with my team and all the rest of the time I was just spending time, I was spending time thinking about who I was, you know, what was, how did I work? And then also like who, how do humans work in general, right? I got really big into psychology. I got really big into philosophy. I was just chewing up Jung and Nietzsche and Freud and all these guys that I didn't have exposure to prior because they're kind of muffled in society. Uh, Nietzsche was huge for me as well. Um, But then it wasn't until I came across the hunter farmer hypothesis by Tom Hartman, which I really like it immediately shifted my perspective on ADHD and this idea of something being a disorder actually being a maladaptive trait that at one point encoded for you to have way better rates of survival. And they looked at that and they kind of looked at like the genes that expressed for these type of traits. And then they looked at the remains of, you know, the people who hypothetically had those genes and they had higher nutrient volumes in their bones than the other uh, hunter gatherers. So this proclivity, this disorder, as they call it, was actually once a very beneficial trait, right? It was a trait that would help you perform better than your peers. It was a desirable trait and it was, it was bred for in the gene pool because you had higher rates of survival, you had higher rates of passing on your genes. And if you think about what ADHD is and the symptomology of ADHD in a hunter, like a hunter gatherer setting, it's highly effective, right? The fact that I'm sitting here and I can just hear all these noises and I can't, I I physically cannot um, like weed them out. Most people have like these six sensitivity receptors in their brain and they can tune off four of them. So you just have two and I can just focus on you very linearly. I can't, I hear the air conditioner. I hear the windows creaking because of the sun. I hear some dude outside doing construction and you can't get rid of that. But in a hunter, in a hunter, in a hunter setting, that's great because imagine me walking through the woods and I hear a crack of a branch in the distance. Right. And then I immediately hyper-focus on it. I can't help but hyper-focus on it. Well, that's good because that was a cougar that was about to eat the shit out of me. Right. Same with like being able to drop everything right now, which seems really bad when I'm trying to focus and then I just get tuned in on something else, right? That was encoded because if you're walking right through the woods looking for berries and you see an antelope, you need to be able to drop everything and go chase that thing because that is food, right? And then looking at that, how that applies to my work, right? So that, that made me understand why I am the way that I am. And then it was like, how can I apply this? And one of those big factors there was you have to look at the comparison between how does a hunter work versus how does a hunter work, uh, a farmer work? How do you be successful at farming? You show up every single day. You do the same exact thing from nine to five. You come in, you slow, like you never have too high peaks, right? Or else you're going to burn out. You have like very like base level output for an extended period of time, year in and year out. You follow the cycles of harvesting and that's that. As opposed to a hunter, you go all all, balls to the wall. Like you go and you kill a woolly mammoth. You exert all of your energy. You get to these super physiological levels of output And then you eat and you rest and you recover. So I really just started getting creative with it. I asked myself, what would this look like if it were easy? If I had a life that actually rewarded me for my unique proclivities. And then you start looking at people in the real world that have these tendencies, right? These hunter tendencies. And you see, how did they do it, right? And then you also look at what was their potential. So you look at a lot of the highest performers in the world. A lot of them do have ADHD. 
But the interesting thing to note there is a lot of the biggest delinquents in the world have ADHD as well. So that's when I kind of realized that anybody who has these proclivities, because they don't meld with that middle of the bell curve, they'll never be normal. If you want to be normal with ADHD, you have to drug yourself up, right? You have to just scrape. And that's what I always noticed. Like it was so much effort to be normal. It was never a lot of effort to be extraordinary. So you're going to end up on one side of the bell curve or the other. You're either going to be a delinquent or you're going to be successful in whatever way you determine that. And it's really up to you. And the first step with that is changing the perception from it being a disorder to being a unique trait that you need to complement. And I think that's step number one. That's why I'm so bullish about it, because I think if people can make that distinction, that's the first step in them making major improvements because it's motivating, it's inspiring. It gets them up and it creates action for them to want to go and to create a life around that. So that's kind of why I'm so big about it and why I really focus a lot of my content on that now. Yeah, I think, well, first off, thank you for sharing all that. That's a lot to unpack and um, a lot of insight. I think that's why specifically your content has resonated with so many people. I mean, your growth, I think you said you started in like April, 2022 or something. Mm -hmm. That Your growth has been ridiculous, right? And I think it's because so many people have been told like myself, for example, I've been told my whole life until relatively recently, or I guess junior year of college is when I stopped taking it. Cause I was like, the fuck am I even doing taking an amphetamine every morning? People literally told me this was actually the, uh, one of the impetus on several occasions, people told me to my face that I was two different people. They're like, Oh, you're way different on, on, on and off your medication. I can tell. And I'm like, I kind of sat back and thought about that. I was like, that fucking scares the shit out of me because I don't want to be two different people. I want to be me. I don't want to have to be the person that takes the amphetamine so I can sit down and be like everybody else. And then when I'm off my pill, I get to like actually act like myself. But I think your message and the way that you reframe it, like you just mentioned, that first step of changing the paradigm from a disorder to actually an advantage when leveraged properly, it resonates with so many people, specifically so many young men, um, which is also why I think that you have a pretty loyal, I would say you have a pretty loyal following um, because it's almost like speaking to the dis, disenfranchised in a way. Um, and the, the way that you do it in terms of the combination of like your <clears throat> your writing style and your articulation ability, but also the the knowledge base and understanding of the physiological part of it. Uh, the combination is unique. And I think it speaks to a lot of people uh, in a time where not a lot of people are doing so. Well, thank you. Yeah, I think that's the big thing, right? It is that these people do feel disenfranchised. And I think most importantly, given just the type of person that hunter types typically are, like, they're very vindictive, right? They're very emotionally driven. So if you get excited about something, if you get something that riles you up, you you are going to take action, because that's the thing that's needed for you to spur some spike of dopamine, otherwise, in, in an otherwise very monotonous world. And um, that's something that I noticed for sure. Um, and I think for me, you know, looking at how did I, you know, start creating content? How have I continued to create content? I've never stuck with anything for an extended period of time, like nothing. I've never stuck with anything for as long as I've stuck with kind of creating content. And the reason for that is because I built that around my proclivities. My only objective with content ever was to keep content enjoyable for me to create as, as frictionless as possible. Because the second that I set up any structure or I set up any routine or any operating procedure, which is something that I do a lot in business because I'm doing it for other people. But when it's exclusively for me, my only objective is to keep it fun. The second it stops becoming fun for me, the second it stops becoming novel, I'd get bored and I'd burn out. 
So, you know, that's why I believe I've stuck with it. And that's why to this day, I enjoy creating content because I built the framework and the way that I approach it around how I operate. Yeah. And that kind of speaks to a tweet. I actually pulled up. Um, I bookmarked it for me. Find an umbrella pursuit that will reward you for exploring new ideas, chasing novelty, switching it up. Um, that is in a nutshell, <laughs> an unintended reason that I like that I even started the podcast because the, the reason I started it more or less is that I had no fucking clue what I wanted to do. And for the exact same purpose that you just mentioned, I would do, I would go ham like for woodworking, for example, in high school, I would go ham on woodworking, spend like 12 hours a day for two straight months, just building random shit. And then I'd kind of burn out of it. And then I'd go into hunting and I'd spend like two months just diving into hunting, learning all I could, shooting my bow, all this stuff. And then I'd get burned out on that and I'd go to this. And for so long, I, I thought that was like, dude, I'm so undisciplined. I can't get myself to be like all these other people that can just stick with it and stick with it. And I'm not going to be successful unless I can just able to funnel my energy towards the same thing. And I realized I was losing excitement for life because I was just trying to fucking drudge through the same shit. Um, and it wasn't until sort of diving into your reframe where I'm like, wait a second, there's a way to leverage this. And Tim Ferriss is a great example talks about uh, me and Ryan Ayala talk about this as well. Uh, You brought it up. What would it look like if it was easy? Right? Like, what would it look like if my life was actually easier (laughs) than I was led to believe it had to be? Um, And you talk about the umbrella thing. So I think that's for hunter type specifically, I think that's massively important. It has been for me at least. Yeah, well, complacency is the death of any hunter type. So you have to pursue the thing that is giving you excitement and that is giving you dopamine. Because your brain is telling you that staying in one place for too long is going to be the death of you, right? Quite literally, like we perform best in new and novel environments. And I had a similar issue. I envied the people that just did one thing and one thing only, and they just stuck with it. I envied them because that's the world that we live in. We live in a world that wants you to be interdependent. We live in a world that wants you to have one specialty and to contribute to the greater whole. That's very unnatural. We've never done that. Up until, you know, like maybe even the Renaissance, like I would say the agricultural revolution, but it was even longer than that. It was more like the industrial revolution because even the Renaissance, you had the Renaissance man, right? So I also had that reframe where it's like, God damn it. Like I get obsessed with something for three months, two months. I become really like pretty proficient at it. I get to, to like a, a proficient level in record time, but then I'm bored of it and I physically can't get myself to do it. Even though I thought in that moment, that was the new me because to me at that point, that was everything. Right. But then you realize that is your special sauce. That's your secret sauce. Your ability to rapidly acquire new skills because of this hyper focus. So you want to take advantage of that. You want to set yourself up in a position where you're able to go and drop everything and go pursue this new pursuit. Because the one real skill that we do have, the one real unique secret sauce that we do have is this incredible ability for pattern recognition and for outside of the box thinking, nonlinear thinking. So all of these skills and experiences that you acquire, you're going, to be, you're going to be able to parlay those into your next endeavor. So you slowly accumulate this incredible and entirely unique perspective uh, and repertoire of skills, tools, information, and knowledge that you can then go apply and it immediately creates a blue ocean for you. So for me, every time I like transition from one business model to the other, I had no reputation in that new business model. I had no testimonials, but I was able to take everything I learned and spin it in a way where it applied directly to this new pursuit. So I was able to close clients with no testimonials, with no results because I had this giant repertoire and because of our ability to kind of pattern recognize and connect the dots, I was able to essentially create an offer and create a skill set that 
applies to literally every aspect of my life. And I think this is something important because a lot of us don't know what we want to do when we're younger, when we're required to decide on our niche, because, you know, that's literally like the brave new world. Like you go through the conveyor belts, it's like, choose this job. You're going to do it for the rest of your life. I implore people to not pigeonhole themselves, right? Because when I went to school, I was going to school for, for law, right? Law and then ultimately finance. And I was like, well, you know, I could find a way to parlay, parlay like my law degree to something else, but that's so much work and it's so much effort and it would be kind of a stretch. What if I just focus on those skills that would work and help me regardless of what endeavor I pursued? And I was like, what are those skills? Well, no matter what I'm going to have to do, I'm going to have to understand human psychology. No matter what I do, I'm going to have to understand marketing, sales, entrepreneurship, leadership studies. So I just spammed soft skills, right? I just spammed soft skills in college. I spammed a lot of these fundamental education, like these fundamental topics and these fundamental subjects. And it was the best thing that I've ever done because I was able to go and then take those in whatever, which angle presented itself to me and take advantage of that, right? Like take advantage of that in the way that I take advantage of seeing an elephant walk down the street and go hunt it. Yeah. The, the reason I said that's crazy and laughed is it's remarkable, remarkable to me, perhaps more people relate to this as well, but like what you just described is something I've experienced so many times in my life where I've had this thing that I'm like three months into, I'm like, Oh, this is the new me. This is great. I'm going to do this for the rest of my life. And then like two weeks later, I'm like, I don't really want to do that anymore. And I always thought of it as like, as a, as a a maladaptive trade. I'm like, well, fuck dude. Like I just bought three pairs of boots because I thought I was gonna be a boot guy. And now I don't even fuck with boots. Um, just stuff (laughs) like that. So, So it's interesting to, uh, to hear that you relate to that. And in terms of the actual, like, application to the modern world what would you say is if there so if there's a hunter type that like knows their hunter type working in a job that they hate that they've kind of almost started pigeonholing themselves what would you say or what would you advise that person to do yeah so uh there are going to be things that pique your interest you have to pursue those because that's going to give you the vitality and that's going to give you the dopaminergic response you need to just be a functioning human And I think it's really important that any hunter type has a very clear picture of what does optimal and suboptimal version of themselves look like. Because I know very well what I look like when I'm performing optimally versus suboptimally. If I'm really on top of my shit, if I'm in that ideal space, that headspace or environment, I light up the room when I walk in. I'm very excited. I'm very extroverted. I'm on the go. Like I'm a go-getter, right? I'm turned on. That's the best way to put it is I'm turned on. I speak articulately. I'm excited. I look forward to hopping on stuff like this. I I know what that version of Noah looks like, but I also know what the complacent version of Noah looks like. I know what Noah looks like when he's in a rut. And whenever I get in those ruts, I immediately seek drastic change, right? Oftentimes that goes for me, like just pretty much just unearthing everything I'm doing and starting over again. Now, as I get older and you realize that you really like, you can do that. And I still can do that whenever I want, but you don't have to do that every time. I usually just find a way to make a shift, right? Like what's a new hobby I can pursue? So for me, I was kind of getting into like a a complacency rut where I was no longer enjoying growth. I was no longer enjoying enjoying learning and accomplishment. So I just picked up some new hobbies. Like I got really into dirt biking and immediately now I'm like ripping this dirt bike like someone who drove it for years. I I, I have ridden bikes in the past, but I've never been this obsessed with one where uh, like I'm like building a bike, right? Um, so doing that, like getting really good at swimming, like just pursuing new things that are going to spark that novelty stimuli that you really need, but, um, get really clear on that, spark that novelty stimuli, which is really important. Was that the question that you had or there was something deeper? Well, more, yeah, that that answers it because it was, it was more so 
the question was like to, to, uh, to somebody that's almost like starting to pigeonhole themselves, maybe in that nine to five that they actually really, really don't like, but they kind of have been taught the whole thing that we've been taught and they're the hunter type. They know that they don't like it. They know that they have all these other interests, but I actually want to hearken on something that you, you've mentioned and that you've tweeted several times about rapid skill acquisition. I totally relate to that as well, especially athletically. Um, yes. and this is another thing that I thought was for a long time, I thought was a negative cause I would be, I was really good at a lot of things, not great at, a, at, at many. Like mm-hmm. I, I always, I would always use the example. Like if you gave me two weeks at a sport, I would be better than average. Um, yes. I wouldn't be the best, but I would be better than, than most people. And that's so true. And I, from a baseball perspective, because that's where I funneled all my energy throughout the first 23 years of my life or 22 years, I thought that was bad because, um, well, in the context of baseball, it actually might be a negative, but in the context of life, now I have so many more skills athletically, uh, cognitively that I can apply, like you mentioned to the next thing that I'm doing, which is this podcast. So now I have all these different experiences, all these different things that I've spent time delving into. And then I can speak with not more authority, but with more relation and be able to relate to people that are in those specific arenas better. So that's, yes. that's well, something that I all, relate to as well. Very common for people with hunter type genealogy to have high kinesthetic intelligence. We have an incredible in- attunement with our body. Skill acquisition from a physical standpoint is incredibly rapid. Like I noticed that very early on, like I was able to do things with my body that other people weren't able to do. Um, I, I noticed that when I first started training martial arts, like jujitsu and Muay Thai in particular, because I was able to do things that people were like, how long have you been training for? And, you know, that's the feedback loop that you want to get into. Work hard at what you're good at, because that's going to be the thing that clicks that gear and that gets you going because it's that positive feedback loop. And we work really well with competition. We work really well with rapid skill acquisition. And I think most importantly, we work really well at that rapid growth curve that you get in the beginning of any new endeavor. Now, the beauty of that, of being a generalist, is that you essentially create a blue ocean for yourself. If you become the best performing in five different, not the best performing, but say the top 5%, you become above average in five different domains, you're able to parlay all of those into one new and novel domain. I'm not the best marketer. I'm not the best orator. I'm not the most intelligent when it comes to health topics at all. But because I'm able to apply all three of those in a way that's novel and not a lot of people are able to do because they spend all their time specializing in one, now I have this new blue ocean that no one else can compete with me in. And it's the same thing that applies to products and marketing. So that's the thing number one there. Now, let's go back to what you were talking about with what should someone do if they're in a position where they have a nine to five, they have a job, they have bills to pay. That's fine. Once again, ask yourself, what would it look like if this was easy? You know, Tim Ferriss has a really, really good outlook on this. It's the four-hour work week. Like, how can I do 80% less and just get the same level of output? How can I hit that benchmark? Same thing that we did in school, right? Same thing that I did in school. It's like, cool. Like, what are my objectives here in school? Um, I just need to get good enough grades. So I like, I like the competition aspect of grades, right? I like the fact that I may, may have looked like an idiot. You know, I may have looked like a rambunctious meathead. But at the same time, I could go in and perform and do better than the people that are putting all of their chips into the academia, yeah. <laughs> but the academia. So, you know, try to find a way to make it look easy. You have to start from first principles. You have to remove all conditioning of how you're supposed to work, how you're supposed to perform. Identify that North Star metric that you're going to get judged on at the end of the day. At the end of the day, if you go in for your weekly review or your quarterly review, what is going to be the metric they're going to judge you on and make sure that you're just maxing that out. 
If you max that out, they're going to overlook all the minor infractions. Maybe you didn't show up to the all hands meeting on Monday. Maybe you're not very responsive on Slack. That's fine, right? So apply that. That's the same thing I did with my agency when I started. It's like, what would this look like if it were easy? Well, if it looked like, if it, what it would look like if it were easy is I would only focus on the things that I enjoy. I love crafting offers. I love pitching. I love selling. I love connecting. I love the client relationships. I hate doing the work. So why don't I bring in a partner and guys to work with me that really like that other aspect? So the biggest advantage that you can have as a hunter type is to partner with farmer types, to partner with people that cross their I's and dot their T's, that like monotony, that don't like to think outside of the box, that want to do that thing. Because if you like what you're doing and they like what you're doing, you have this whole picture. You become a better whole that really checks all the boxes. Now, that's what I would do. The most important thing is in any endeavor, regardless how monotonous it is, there are going to be opportunities to learn something, to learn some sort of skill. So you need to pursue that because you're not going to be motivated by showing up and doing a good, good job and getting a pat on the back from your boss. You're going to be motivated by growth, right? And self-actualization. So you need to find the things in your immediate vicinity, in your immediate endeavor that you're going to be able to grow from and then figure out ways to hypothetically extrapolate that to your next pursuit. Right on, man. I think that's phenomenal advice. I really do. And I think that the partnering with farmers is what stuck out to me. That's, it's kind of uh, Liver King always used to say this about his wife, but the complementary opposite. So um, for the exact reason, like the hunter, and this is, this is all, you could even extrapolate this into uh, like a hunter and gatherer tribe. Like there were people, people were more well-rounded, but there were people that were probably better at hunting a specific animal. And there were people that were better at this uh, aspect of hunting and so on and so forth. The hunter that's really good at this and a hunter that's really good at this coming together probably are better hunters than if they were just going doing their lone wolf thing. So I think that's important as well because you see a lot of like the solopreneur, not to say that like to dog on that, but like the lone wolf type vibe. Um, I believe that there's, there's limitations on that, especially as a hunter type. It's depressing unless you're an introvert, right? Which you're not, none of us are. And yeah, we evolved in the, in the context of tribes, right? We evolved like interdependently to a certain extent. Now, not nearly to the level at which we are now, because now it's not a tribe. It's a, it's an amalgamation of millions yeah. of people that want you to all be interdependent on. It's a system. That's not a tribe. Tribes never were bigger than 80 people because you physically can't know more than 80 people personally. Yep. <clears throat> like in one setting, like you can't go down the list. Be like, oh, that's Bobby, Jimmy, like Crystal, yada, yada, yada. Have you read but Tribe anyway, by Sebastian so Younger? Uh, no. It's a good, good, good book. book. It's really short too. Definitely recommend. Ooh, I'm reading it right now. I'm actually going to go on a uh, walk after and just read the whole thing. Um, but anyway, <laughs> yeah, so you have to understand that. It's really important to find your tribe, which I've found. It's always a weird cliche because I think every person that ever does like uh, a smidgen of like peyote or ayahuasca is immediately like find your tribe. You know, uh, I, I mean, I feel like even wearing this, I look like one of those guys, but anyway, they're like, they're like find your tribe, like a shaman. Like, do this, like my tribe. And it's really cliche and it's cringy and they don't use it right. But in reality, you need to find a group of people that are like you that operate like you that all have different skill sets <clears throat> and you go out and you help one another. And that's really important. It's something that I overlooked for a long period of time. And I think especially now because men in particular are extremely lonely there's a loneliness epidemic. We're more connected than ever, but we're lo more lonely than ever. And we've lost a lot of those things that traditionally brought uh, camaraderie, right? <clears throat> we always lived in like these towns, which were essentially tribes. You'd know all the guys that were in your age group that you worked with, that you went to the bar with, that you went to church with. Now we're so like independent to an extent where we don't even do that. 
we always had those three places, right? We had home, we had work, and then we had the third place. It was the bar, it was a sports club, it was the church. Now we don't even have the second place, right? Because we all work from home. So it's important to do that. It's important to build that community. I mean, like, that's what I do down here, right? Like I have my community in this town, but then I also have like my extended group and like my extended tribe where I just have buddies fly in all the time, spend time with me, build those relationships. And the majority of them are like my Twitter friends. Like I'm just like right now I'm here with, you know, one of my business partners and a buddy of mine from Twitter. So like, I think that's really important as well is find other people that are pursuing similar things to you. Because that is kind of the beauty of camaraderie. That's why people like playing sports, because it's a bunch of guys all pursuing the same goal. Even in school, that's why school was so incredible, because everybody that you were around was the same age as you, and they were all pursuing the same objective to graduate. But once you get out of school, you don't have that anymore. Absolutely. And even in, in my particular instance, and obviously many others playing sports in college, that was when I left college, I didn't realize how much that I relied on that group. Like those were my, that was my tribe, more or less my team. That was my fraternity every single day, spending hours with the same people laughing about shit, talking shit to each other, struggling together, but all going towards the same goal and having uh, a baseline of alignment that kind of allowed me to at least neglect having to think about different other things, if that makes sense. Um, mm -hmm. Cause like if you're on my team and I see you at the gym and we go to practice, I can already just tell that we're aligned on at a baseline, which makes me relate to you even more. Uh, and you mentioned martial arts. I'm glad you mentioned that because that I, I jujitsu changed my life for sure, because that's what filled the gap of baseball for me. Um, mm. And for some reason, kind of the same way that you mentioned it, it's it was like one of those things that I quickly got really good at. And I that got me hooked because I was like, holy shit, like if I spend more time on this, I could get really, really good. And then you, I started competing a little bit and um, talk about like martial arts, if you don't mind, and how that's been like impacted you. Yeah, a hundred percent. So I think the biggest thing that martial arts did was one, it offered me a place to like to pursue this age old act of like combat right? Like friendly combat, which is so important. You look at any like old movie, it was always the kids that were fighting each other with wooden swords, right? That's something that was so pivotal to us as humans. We'd fight each other, right? Because so much of our life was fighting, right? All sports is, is ritualized war, right? It's you, one tribe fighting another tribe. You guys have your flags, you have your hakas, you have your dances, you have your things that make you you and you go and you fight a bunch of other people. It's all ritualized war because that's really deep down what all men, most men, need and want right they want conflict they want combat that's why we all love war movies right why do you think war movies are so fucking popular so in this modern world we're just so inherently soft i so many people have never been punched in the face so many people have never even had any form of conflict and you know a lot of times what you notice is there's some people people that don't know how to fight they will do a lot of posturing right and you realize that like posturing guys that are yelling at the bar that are making a scene they're doing that because they're afraid and because they don't feel in control of the situation so that's a way of them avoiding conflict is by making themselves look big and loud. They're trying to not fight, right? And you see that with bears, right? Like when bears fight or any animal, but they, they do this, they, they fluff up. The reason they do that is because they don't want to fight. Now, when you start training martial arts and you get your shit kicked by, you know, some brown belt lady uh, or something like that, some guy that's less, less weight than you, you realize that secondary dynamic of how the world works. 
you realize that there's this underlayer that's going on in our psychology that's making us always question, like, could that guy beat me up? Could that guy beat me up? Could I win in this fight? And it's always there and it's eating away at you. And it makes this dynamic very uneven, right? But then you go and fight and you learn how to control your body. You learn how to control other people's bodies. You learn that skill. And it really changes the way that you interact with the world. Um, I definitely used to be a lot more, I wouldn't say explosive, but like I would, you know, like posture, I would, you know, get in road rage incidents. I would be a lot more like aggressive in that sense. I started training martial arts and I haven't gotten in a road rage incident since. And, you know, I can't really pinpoint why it does that, but it makes you so much more docile into the real environment. I find that it made me way more comfortable as well, like knowing that at the end of the day, if, if anyone has a knife or a gun, I'm fucked. But at the end of the day, I have more control over situations in my setting. But I think the most important thing too is, you know, the relationships that you build with people when you're it, fighting is a very intimate thing, right? If you think about it, like most of the time we're told that like, you don't even want to touch other people. Like, you can't even do handshakes, but in fighting, you're like grappling with some dude, hitting some dude in the face for like 10 minutes, 20 minutes over and over and over again. Like there's nothing that kind of builds a connection like fighting does. So that's really important there. I think the skills you learn is important. You learn how to push yourself. You learn what you're capable of. And I think most importantly, it does something to you epigenetically. It does something to you hormonally, where once I started training, you know, I changed as a person. Like the way that I looked changed. My neck got bigger. My jaw got bigger. My brow line got bigger. Your body needs a reason to create these androgens, right? Your body is not just going to give you really high testosterone just because. It needs a reason to do that. That's why people in prison, they all have such high testosterone, even though they have horrible diets and they're like barely outside at all, right? Because their body has a reason for them to become more androgenic. So I find that to be a really big factor. I've seen so many transformations of people before and after they started, and it's both psychological and physical, but we also have to understand that the psychological and physical are deeply intertwined. It's not like your psychology changes without your physicality changing. Your physicality does not change until your psychology changes. So it really just changes the way that you interact with the world. And knowing that you know how to fight, you know, at the end of the day, with any sport, you play someone in baseball, like, yeah, you beat me in baseball, but I could beat you in a fight, right? There's none of that in martial arts. It's like, yeah, you beat me in a fight. And I think that is the coolest thing. I don't think anything pushes me to the level of my limits more than martial arts in terms of like, I really don't want to lose, you know, I'm okay with losing, but I don't want to, I really don't want to. Um, and it, it really just pushes you. It just, it changes the way that you interact with the world entirely. So well said. And, and I think martial arts could be a podcast in and of itself, probably several. Uh, what I'm reminded of is my buddy, AJ Briley mentioned something I had never really thought about. Uh, he, he, a buddy through jujitsu and entrepreneur as well, but he talks about there being a, a, a spectrum of human touch, a continuum of human touch. And there's on one end, there's like the most intimate, which is sex. And the other hand, there's no physical touch or like a handshake. Like you mentioned, we're taught mm -hmm. nowadays where there's, it's really only the polarity there's sex or shaking hands, but for all of eternity, like as long as humans have been alive, we've been touching in a non-sexual, but more intimate way. And so it was so cool when he said this, it clicked immediately. Martial arts, especially training at a young age, which is one of the reasons I'm going to certainly put my children into it. It opens you up to this massive part of the spectrum that you otherwise have no, no ability to tap into, which is physical touch that's intimate, that's non-sexual. And it's, it does something. I don't know if there's physiological responses in terms of hormones that get released or, or anything in the brain, but it does something to you where 
for example, Jocko Willink talks about it. The average person, when they get grabbed, they freak out. Like they'd be mm-hmm. like, what? He said that he like literally smiles. Like if someone grabs him, he's like, oh, hell yeah. Like here we go. Um, so it's an interesting, I thought that was a really interesting uh, thought that he, that he added. And the other thing in terms of looking at things differently, I relate to that 100%. And I know for a fact that most of the people I've talked to also relate to that because, for example, I was walking through the airport in Austin a couple of days ago. And I had this thought, I was literally like, it was almost an ego boost. Cause I was like, I have not seen a single person here that on the surface level, I would not feel comfortable in a physical altercation with that being said, it's also humbling because I've been tapped out by 130 pound dude, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? So it's like, it's this weird push and pull where you get confident, but you're also like, wait a second, that guy's a little bit of a, is that, is that some cauliflower here? <laughs> I don't know yeah. if I want to stay away. It, it, it lifts the veil of humanity it lifts the veil of social interactions because i see it too like that's that's my thought when i interact with most people it's like i could be you i could be unified and i'm not i'm not a very big guy right so like for me i really have to push above my weight uh and that's i think that's part of the reason why like i go so hard is because like i'm not, I'm, I'm heavy uh, but i'm not that tall so it's like i like see someone who's like six foot four like 200 pounds and it's like well i i gotta be you now and, um, you know, it, it, it definitely changes that the, the touch aspect is the most important part. And I didn't know how to verbalize it. That is the perfect explanation of it. And it's so profound, right? And if you look at like, why does it do that? First of all, you know, we're all like vibrational, energetic creatures, right? So our vibrations do resonate off one another, but two, it's also coming from like a, a microbiome standpoint, right? Like our microbiomes are built via touch, like, like uh, being in close vicinity with one another. Our microbiomes are built in our environment. Right. That's why, like, when the Spaniards came to the Amazon, they gave everybody smallpox because they all shared that microbiotic cesspool. Right. This new tribe did not. So I think there's factors there as well. But at the end of the day, you're right. Like, human touch is so important. I think that's one of the reasons why people struggled so much during the lockdown is because we were told not to have any form of human touch. Right. And that's so important. Like, it's like, I don't know, like, if you've ever been in, like, even like when people like pray for you, right? Like they put their hand on you. There's so many factors there. I think that's a really important factor as well. It's like just being in close vicinity with other people. And it's just completely understated now, like today. They, they actively warn you against it and they want you to be afraid of human touch. And what more authentic or uh, like not visceral, but a jujitsu gym, like you go to a, a, a jujitsu gym, and I've seen pictures of you post like you're the one in Mexico. It looks so grungy. I love it. Like it just looks right. like a bunch of sweat. No, seriously, it's just a bunch of sweaty people getting really, really close. You go from rolling with one dude that's really sweaty that has his own microbiome and all these things. And then you go to the next guy and you're the, the immune system effect is something I've never thought about. But I, I would be willing to bet that there's a study that needs to be done or has done on the, the power that, that that has on the strength and resilience of your immune system. That'd be an interesting thing to look into. Oh, 100%, especially here, dude. I'm, I'm rolling in the jungle, you know, like rolling in the jungle, just indoor, outdoor. And But another big factor here as well is like, I'm rolling. I'm obviously a foreigner. All the guys that I'm rolling with are locals. So it's like the connection that I have with these guys now that otherwise would be impeded by a culture. And I speak Spanish, which helps. Like, oh, everything's in Spanish. Um, but like now I go around town and I see my rolling partners. And like the connection that I have with these people now is so deep. It's just ridiculous. And all it took was a few rolls. It, it could take one roll. There, there's been instances where I've rolled with a guy one time and I'm like, I think I know you. <laughs> yeah. Well, like, dude, I, that's think, I think we've thing. met. 
there's guys that I've really despised. I just, we really didn't click uh, at other gyms. Like almost like your, your gym nemesis, you know, you all have one of those. And there's one gym nemesis that I had. He was like a, an ex D one football player, just so athletic, so athletic. And he had kind of an ego about him. And um, he was, he would just mop the floor with everybody. Cause he was just so fucking athletic. It was, he was a specimen and we would roll sometimes and it was just ridiculous. But I, I got really good defense. Like I rarely tap. Um, not because obviously if I, if I get caught in an arm bar or get a hook, I'm, I'm tapping. But one day I got his back. I got his back and I like, it's like, I got his number. I figured out how to beat him and it was take his back. He's powerless on his back. So I started taking his back over and over and over again, you know, finally lock one of his arms, get him in a rear naked and I got him. And once I got him and once it wasn't even the tap that got him, it was the fact that I had him in back control, like rear mount for like two minutes and he couldn't do anything. And immediately after that, we were the best friends in the gym. Like him and I were the best friends in the gym. We would always roll together. We drill together. And it was, it's just so crazy how quickly those dynamics change. That happens a lot. There's guys I don't like. We go and we fight. And now we're great friends. Now, like I vouch for that guy. That guy is someone I hold in high regard, depending on how he reacts to the fight. And like, it just completely changes that dynamic. Yeah, there's, there's something to be said. I don't even know how to describe it or articulate it, but it really is. It's, it's like a respect because especially I've never experienced this yet, but somebody that reacts poorly to, to a loss, that would be maybe an interesting dynamic. Cause then it maybe speaks into the egoism and all that. But people that, for example, like my, my, my coach uh, in Atlanta, coach Phil Gentry, the w- something about the way that he goes around, he's always smiling, laughing, joking around. He's so nice to everybody. He would literally beat the shit out of everybody in the gym. Yeah. And it's like, but it's like you would, if you saw him in, the, uh, in public, except for his mm-hmm. ears, you'd be like, oh, maybe he trains. I don't know. But he would literally beat the shit out of anybody, like 99.9% of people. But he also respects the people um, that can handle losses and stuff with grace as opposed to being those hard-nosed dudes that like that go too hard and then end up injuring somebody. Like there was one guy who yes. ended up uh, going way too hard and actually ended up uh, like, I don't, I don't know if it was an Achilles injury or something, but he fucked somebody's ankle up. And now nobody wants to train with that guy because he – is a, is a poor baby, like a, a loser in, in a lot of ways. It, it but, is. Uh, it's, it's a social hierarchy in and of itself in the gym. It's, there's a dynamic, there's politics, right? You, you have to play that game as well. Oh yeah, absolutely. It's, it, it's its own community and you will get off. You will get out it. Like if, if you fuck up enough times, you will get removed from the community just as a tribe, literally just as yeah, a, as a tribe. It, that's, that's the reality of all human interactions. We always resort to some form of tribalism at smaller or bigger scales in the workplace, in towns like this, right? In group chats, it's all a hierarchy. It's all dynamics. It's all just like this deep core human functioning, the environment that we've been growing and evolving in for the last hundreds of thousands of years. Like it's just so hardwired into us. We don't know it because we don't teach it, right? We don't look at evolutionary biology. We don't look at anthropology. There's too many people that don't want us to think about things from that perspective. But for me, you know, I I spent a while in Thailand out there at a university. And the entire time there, I was just studying anthropology and like primate behavior. And this professor of mine, a field anthropologist from Thailand, completely changed the way that I looked at humans because he just took every single one of our core desires, our core inklings, our core functioning, and he relayed it to like evolutionary reasoning behind it. And that just opened my mind. It was the answer to all the questions that I always had, all the inklings I always had. And like, honestly, that was part of the reason why I just became so like hypothetically primal. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's a it, it's a it's a lens to 
to see almost every interaction through. Usually you start to have an understanding of why a certain temperament or a certain person might respond in a certain way. And it also gives you a little bit more empathy, I think, um, in certain situations as to why people respond um, in certain ways. But you, you mentioned Spanish and, and rolling in the jungle. You're in Mexico. I'm curious, what 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 was the draw of Mexico? Like, why, why are you in love with that place? Yeah, so ever since I was a kid, like I said, life was so boring for me, uh, for lack of a better term. I just, I was literally thinking about it this morning. I go for a swim every morning. And the reason I go for a swim is because it's so quiet when you're in the ocean and it's so repetitive. So I'm just thinking that whole time. And I was like, man, like you get like those flashbacks early in the morning because you're kind of subconscious and conscious is so delineated that you start thinking about your experiences as a child. And so much of my experiences as a child was me just like waiting, me just sitting somewhere and like being bored. And I found every time I went to a new place, it's like the veil is open and it unlocked. And a lot of that came down to a specific gene, uh, like gene variant, the DRD4R7 variant. It's also known as the wanderlust gene. A lot of hunter types have it, but essentially it's the gene that was encoded in a lot of nomadic cultures, right? This deep rooted desire to go and to explore new environments. But when you get to these new environments, you immediately go from conservation mode to exploration mode, opportunities, like new threats, new experiences. So I realized that very early on that I performed so well in new environments. I would go to summer camp the first year and I would be the man. I would just, it would be incredible. I would be on, I would be the optimized version of Noah. But second time I'd go the next summer, it was, it wasn't new to me. It wasn't novel. So then I became the unoptimized version of Noah. I realized that, you know, the same thing happened. I, I lived in Spain for two summers uh, as in high school with the host family. First summer, awesome. Second summer, boring. So after going to school in Thailand, I was like, I'm going back to Southeast Asia. I optimized my entire life for being able to work from wherever, right? With the cybersecurity company that I was building, a completely uh, asynchronous team, multiple time zones. I was optimizing everything to be able to work, you know, time zone independent. Uh, anyway, COVID made that difficult, right? Because every time I tried to go, flight would get canceled. It was just a horrible shit show. I'd have to fly through China. So I just said, screw it one day. I was actually down in Peru and I was there for a while. And I'm like, screw it. I'm just going to move to Mexico. I get to keep my phone number. It's really close. Uh, you know, I'm going to go there for a few months and then I'm going to go down south further to Guatemala and Nicaragua because I want it to be like a real, like now I'm like, I, I'm like, I have air conditioning, right? Like I, I have a structured environment. I, I have a good setup. But back then, it's like, I want to be like Anthony Bourdain level in the jungle, yeah. like just getting drunk off of fermented, you know, poop <laughs> or whatever it is, just completely embracing those cultures. Uh, but anyway, Mexico kind of stuck. I was in Mexico City. I was able to build like a really, really, really incredible network and community as like some kid, right, with nothing going for him. And, you know, that was two years ago. And it kind of stuck and it became like home. I started traveling a bunch, you know, now I live on the beach. Um, but it was just the convenience factor. The fact that I can have friends fly down, you know, whenever I want, I'm in an American time zone. I can go and visit my family like every six months, super easily. They come down here, we meet up. So the convenience factor was huge and it really comes down to what your values are. And my values is just freedom and flexibility. I like being unencumbered. So here I'm super unencumbered. I still live out of a suitcase. I can just, you know, buy stuff. I can rent places fully furnished, you know, buy a motorcycle, buy a surfboard, all that stuff. And like, there's no bureaucracy that I have to deal with, unlike in the States. Like if I wanted to live this life in the States, I just physically couldn't. Like I couldn't move every one month, two months, three months, because it would be a pain in the ass. And like if I wanted an Airbnb for a month, it'd be like $10,000. Yeah, I was about to say, and it's just outrageously expensive. Uh, I want to 
touch on the what was it the dr d7 gene is that what that was dopamine receptor d4 seven repeating variant dr d4 r7 because the reason i want to talk about that is because I've, I've spoke about this with my brother before like even for example i just got to montana yesterday and first time in montana for, and since i was like five or six uh and the reason I bring that up is whenever I've gone to a new place, like when I went to Costa Rica over the summer, uh, when I go to my friend's beach house, when I go here, there, it's almost like I want to do more. Like I want to do more work. I feel like I'm more dialed in. I want to like, I get there and I want to optimize even more. Like I don't want to do the vacation anymore. I'm like, I want to get on my computer and do some shit or create. And I wonder if that has anything to do with that gene. I've never heard of it before, but that makes sense because even like when I moved to Tampa for a little bit, the first couple of weeks I was like, dialed i was like let's go a new environment new stimuli new new like all everything's novel i want to i want to create i want to like dive in and then it starts to lose its uh luster which is interesting i've never thought about that but perhaps it's it's related um and the, the other thing I've, I've heard you speak about that i kind of want to hear uh your your progression through it is like the minimalism and how that affects your lifestyle have you did you ever have a point where you were like a maximalist or or have you always kind of been in the in the minimalism space. I was a hoarder. I was my, uh, the way I was, I like grew up, it was kind of the idea that everything had value. Don't waste anything, you know, like if you get something, keep it right. Cause that's the bartering system that we evolved in for a, a pretty extended period of time. Um, but anyway, let's talk about the DRD for R7 real quick. And the, the reason that novel environments spark this desire for action, right? If you think about it, like, you go from living in the plains, you're very much accustomed to where you're living. Everything is very set in stone. So you're just trying to conserve things the way that they are. You're trying to reduce the energy expenditure. You're trying to just subsist. But the second you go to a new environment, it's like I said, that switch turns on in your brain that says, holy shit, new environment, new threats, new opportunities. I have to take action now. I have to find shelter. I have to find opportunities here, abundance, environment. So that is the reason that new environments work so effectively for some people. That's why I got the most progress done in my business and in my life when I was constantly traveling. That does something to certain people. In that wanderlust gene, it's more common in nomadic cultures. And that's why we see a lot of people who like, for example, a lot of people that are like thrill seekers, right? Thrill seeking behavior, uh, you know, a lot of alcoholics as well, a lot of gamblers, they all have this wanderlust gene because their dopaminergic response is so much it's almost blunted compared to the average person. The average person is going to get a pretty good kick out of watching Netflix every night. Someone with the DRD4 R7 is not. They need novelty. They need stimuli. That's why gambling is so incredible because of the variable reward aspect, right? That's why, especially if you look at a lot of the nomadic cultures, like the Native Americans, they have the highest rates of gambling addictions and alcohol addictions because that is a poor manifestation of that gene variant. And that's what a lot of this comes down to. It comes down to these maladaptive traits that if you let them run wild and you're not aware of them in the modern world, you're going to end up hooked to the easiest and lowest friction vices, right? Social media addiction, porn, alcohol, marijuana, any of these things. So that's why you need to be aware of it. And then you need to craft a life around it. So that is kind of the, I highly recommend everybody look up DR, D4R7. There's a lot, they, they pageantize it now. Where it's like, oh my God, it's the wanderlust gene. Like it's the reason that you love traveling. And like, of course, you know, like hipster people get into it and they're like, oh, I'm wanderlust. Um, but there's actually an actual <laughs> genetic component to it that has legitimacy to it. Now, anyway, let's talk about minimalism. So especially with hunter types, our ability to, like I said, we can't, 
tune out stimuli in our environment. We can't tune out things that we have to do. To us, everything that we have to do is of the same pertinence and priority. So for me right now, I have like a really big thing I have to do for my business, but I also have to make breakfast, right? Those are on the same level of importance to me. Me getting like me essentially like writing uh, like a book is of the same importance to me as me doing the dishes. So you're best off removing all variables that are taking up headspace and muddling your thinking. Because even if you're not thinking about them directly, your subconscious is still thinking about them. And nothing does that more than having things. Because when you have things, they're in your direct environment, right? Out of sight, out of mind is really important. I think everyone hunter type wise needs to remember that. But then you also have the fact that they're thinking about like, where is my, like, where's my car? Like, have I, have I paid for my car payments? Like what shape is it in? Do I need to take it in for an oil change? Right. Even like a, a device or like, where's my red light device? Like, how is it? What condition it is, is it in? Am I using it? Am I not using it? Your brain's constantly thinking that and chewing on that. I got so fed up with that my junior year when I was packing up to go back to college that I just said, fuck it. And I just got rid of everything. I got really into the minimalism movement and it completely changed the way that my brain functioned and operated. The clutter of my external environment directly correlated to the clutter of my internal environment. So I decluttered my external environment. I went hyper minimalist as well. A lot of people, they have retail therapy wherever, whenever they feel like shit, they go and buy something. I had the inverse of that. Wherever I felt down or bad, I would just get rid of stuff. And I immediately felt better. It was like a weight was lifted off my shoulder. And I don't think that I would be able to live the life that I live if I didn't get comfortable with not have, with, with removing myself from the obsession with things and like the, I can get rid of everything I have right now and just start from scratch tomorrow and be fine and not care. It doesn't mean that I don't like things. It means that those things don't have a hold on me like they used to and like they do for most people. Because the reality is a lot of people are stuck where they are because their things own them, right? Because they're stuck in, you know, Nebraska, even though they want to live in like the, the panhandle because they have a car payment. They have a house which they've decorated with their sofa that they really like. And I think that's what happens when you don't have enough things going on in your life is you direct that energy toward things, right? You become a plant dad. You start putting your energy and your focus into material objects because that's what we're told is going to make us happy. So if you can just reject that, I think that's the first step in kind of living this alt life, this alternative lifestyle and kind of, you know, bucking this thing that's confining all of us, right? The thing that's forcing you to keep your job is because you want to own a bunch of things because you think those things are going to make you happy. You think those things are going to make you cool. And at the end of the day, it's not. No one ever thinks you're cool for having things. They just think about how cool they would be if they had those things. So that's kind of my logic with that. I think at the end of the day, I've always been a bare bones guy. Like everything that I want to do, I want to, I, I don't want to improve. I want to improve me. I want me to be cooler. I don't want my clothes to be cooler. I want me as Noah to be cooler. I want to be cool naked, right? Like I want to be cool with nothing. So, you know, most guys, they can't do that. Like they come to a beach like this, like they don't take their shirt off at the pool, right? They wear hats, they wear jewelry, they wear all of these clothes to cover up. Oh, and shit. Gain, you know what? Yeah, yeah, no, I'm wearing a scarf. I mean, <laughs> no, it's, it's different, right? But at the end of the day, it's that people like to borrow credibility and they like to borrow status from goods. Right. If I wear a Gucci shirt, people are going to associate the status that they have with Gucci with me. If I wear Nike shoes, people are going to associate the view of athleticism and coolness with Nike with me. But in reality, it's a superficial pursuit. You know, I think that's why we love marketing, because it's really easy once you think about it from that standpoint. But I don't wear any branded stuff, really. Like everything that I have is just blank. Um, I mainly just wear cotton shorts, you know, and that's about it. Um, but it, I like I said, I have one suitcase. I have one suitcase. 
And that's all I need. Actually, I overpacked the, probably. Yeah, dude. The, the, once again, I'm struck by the relation that I have to that because in college, perhaps it was a result of the amphetamine and the absolute uh, just ridiculous amount of stimulation going on, just absurd amount of energy. Um, I had three closets in my dorm room. I had the closet that came with the dorm room. I used the common room closet and I literally bought a, this is so fucking stupid of me to even say out loud. I bought a third closet to keep in the common room. And when I moved out, that was the first thing I was like, what the, I have a lot of shit and I don't wear a lot of it. So then I moved into my sophomore year apartment. I kept all of it. And then after that, I was like, okay, I need to get rid of some stuff. And slowly and surely it's kind of been this, this, uh, because I think it's hard for a lot of people. It's almost too daunting. It's too much of a mountain. But it literally just started with me. Any t-shirts that I had that I didn't wear in the last five months I th- or six months, I threw away. Then it was like, okay, well, I don't wear these shoes. I'll throw those away. I'll give them away. I'll sell them. And, dude, I'm not kidding you. I was talking to my dad uh, yesterday because, I, like I mentioned, I came up to Montana. I went to my closet, and I was thinking about what I'm going to wear. Uh, and I go to my closet, and I realize I don't have much of a choice. I literally, this bag I'm looking at right now, I can fit every piece of clothing that I own in that singular bag. And it's mm. in terms of the output that I've been able to put into the world, it has been exponential, the less material things that I've owned, because for the exact reason that you mentioned and um, articulated in a way that I've never been able to is physical clutter leads to mental clutter. And I don't know if it's the hunter type uh, temperament specifically, but I would always fixate on my things. Like you said, what state is that closing? Oh, those shoes are dirty. I need to go clean those shoes. Uh, that there's a ton of dishes. So now I just have one cup and one fucking plate. I don't need a bunch yeah. of dishes because I don't want to do dishes. You know what I'm saying? Um, so that, that that's phenomenal to me. I think it's such a hard line for people to cross for some reason. And I don't know. I haven't figured out why. Perhaps it's the difference it's in the temperaments. Yeah. And, and like you mentioned, Liver King actually mentions this as well. One of the things that I actually think that he spoke, uh, I, I think it was really important for him to say, People go to the mall and buy jewelry, and that's where they get their status from, just like you mentioned. But that's not where real status comes from. It comes from from us and the way that you put it. I want to look good naked. That's obviously literal probably, but but figurative in a way. You, you want to be cool for yourself, not for the things that you have. And um, have, have you ever heard of Essentialism by Greg McCown? I think is his name. Yeah, great book. Great book. Phenomenal. Yeah, so that, that was pretty instrumental to me as well in terms of – kind of doing what we're talking about, like doing less, but better having less, but maybe they're nicer. Um, not really like I've literally, I'm not kidding. I've worn, I wore these jeans and the shirt and this hat yesterday all day. So that might be gross. I don't know. But, um, in terms of the first step, like I've mentioned, it's a hard thing to do. And many hunter types fall into that, that trap. What's the first like practical piece of advice you'd give to somebody that has a lot of things. And, yeah. uh, what's the first piece of advice you give them to take that step forward? Yeah, you know, it's hard because so much of your identity is wrapped up in these things, right? You start anthropomorphizing these things. They all have different names. You, you literally treat them like pets, which if you think about it objectively, that's absurd. You know, that is such absurdity. That happened to me with shirts, dude. In college, I loved my t-shirts because I had all the coolest t-shirts. Like every uh, every sorority formal I go to, I'd get a cool t-shirt. Like I'd get all these sweet t-shirts and it was an identity to me. And I'd wake up in the morning and I'd spend so much time figuring out what t-shirt I want to wear. It was so stupid. But, you know, there's really two options there. You first have to be very objective and clear of how much this shit sucks. 
how much it's draining you and you need to have that vision right and like realize like oh my god like i'm spending this much time thinking about this all the goddamn dishes and like cups i have in here is so ridiculous like why why am i doing this so you need that pain response you need that pain to strike action now the best way to do it which is the lowest stakes is don't get rid of anything just put it all in a bin and hide it away and then just see what you can subside off of so bin it all away put it in storage if you need it go to storage take it out if you're not using it for longer than like if you haven't used it in a month put it back in storage and that's going to get you accustomed to realizing you don't need much at all and then that's when you pull the trigger once you remove that emotional connection just get rid of all of it bitch it din it ditch it bin it uh sell it get rid of it and once it's gone you don't have to worry about it anymore it might sting a little bit you might miss it i missed some of my hats or i did i missed some of my hats but then you forget about it and you realize how quickly your body and your brain adapts to new environments when in reality you realize you don't need anything. And I think that is why I like, I don't think that people are going to be able to live the life they want to live, especially if they want to live an adventurous life. If they're still obsessed with their things, how, like how constricting is that? It's so conflicting. Like people can't go certain places because they can't go longer than two weeks without their favorite stuff. They go on vacation with three suitcases for a week. It's just, it's so ridiculous. And you realize how frivolous it is and how much it's getting in the way of who you want to be. And I think you have to realize, like you have to internalize the pain of realizing that you're missing out on opportunities because you're obsessed with stuff and how lame it is that you associate your identity with physical goods. And I'm purposely being uh, blunt here because it's a blunt manner. And like that bluntness is what got me to strike action. Absolutely. And the, what just came to mind, I don't know who said it, but to be rather than to seem. So yes. we use these material items to seem like, oh, that you use the athletic example. Or, you know, those dudes who have like the brand new uh, rash guard and like the really cool brand new uh, Nogi shorts. That seems like, oh, this guy must be legit. And yeah. then you see like you rolling into a damn gym with a cotton tank top and a cotton pair of shorts and just tapping dudes. It's We, we are drawn to the understated hero the guy who shows up with like a, a an unimposing uh persona or, or visual that that actually gets the job done at a higher level so i think that that's interesting um well fuck i can't remember what well, you were I, saying I want to about, touch on uh, that it's really important that you mention that yeah go ahead. so many people get into the habit of being dilettantes where it's kind of what we said where you get obsessed with things and you're not even good at it right you, you haven't earned the right to be flashy but you go and you buy all of the best gear. They're always the worst, right? Like, you know that dude, like you're probably playing baseball and he had the best glove, he had the best bat. He was very mid and he was very average. People don't like that because you didn't earn that, right? You didn't earn the right to utilize any of that. But then you have the person that really doesn't care. The person that only comes to focus on the art wearing his raggedy clothes. Like I still don't have any, like everyone's wearing shoyo roll and it's like, I'm I'm wearing my fucking, you know, doctor skins. You know, I'm, I'm wearing like, my same rash guard that I've always worn. Now I don't barely even wear rash guards. Like I wear cotton shorts or I wear like cotton briefs and then I wear polyester shorts now. Um, but anyway, yeah. Like so do I, I, do, like I do cotton underwear, polyester shorts. Yeah, you need, the, you need the, the polyester shorts. But if you're wearing cotton under it, it's not a big deal. Um, but anyway, yeah, it's like it, people like when things look effortless. People like – nobody likes to try hard. I'll say that. Nobody likes to try hard. They like people that come in and they're just doing it for fun and they make it look easy. People love people who make things look easy. That's why we love John Jones, right? John Jones gets in so much trouble. He makes it look easy. He mops the floor with people. He gets hammered before his sessions and he still rips everybody to pieces. 
So yeah, there is something to be said about people. Like, that's why like, I think with content, what you want to do with content, you want to be as lo-fi as possible because you don't want people to follow you because you're flashy or you're witty or because you have good editing. You want people to follow you because of you and because you really don't care if they like you or not. And you just post what you want to post. That's the long game from, you know, I ran a content agency for two years and like you learn the other side of things. You learn that real growth comes from authenticity and just not giving a shit. Yeah. And, and you talked about it earlier, keeping things easier. Like what would it look like if it's easy? And I'm actually perhaps even falling a little bit into that trap with the podcast thinking, oh, I have to get this thumbnail. I have to get this video clip. I have to get this, this, and this, which makes it less easy, which makes me less inclined. And you talk about redundancies a lot, dude. That is, that is creating thumbnails and all that dumb shit is so redundant. It makes me sick. So maybe that's right. actually something I need to take a step back on and, and, and look at. But I want to uh, mention the dishes example because I think this really sums it up for me. This was like one of the biggest, uh, one of the clearest lenses that helped me look through the minimalism lifestyle, I guess, is the way that I live. And I don't know if this is just hunter types in general. I would want the dishes to be done, right? So they would, they would get done. doesn't matter how many dishes there were. So I realized that I said, okay, if I'm spending X amount of time per day, per week, per month, per year of my life doing dishes because they need to be done, then can I have less dishes? Because then maybe that'll be less time. And then I was like, okay, hmm, maybe I don't need three pans. Maybe I don't need five plates. Maybe I don't need X, Y, and Z amount of silverware. So I just think it's, it, it really lays it out and delineates it really clearly. When you take a step back, why would you need more than a certain amount of plates, for example? You don't. It literally doesn't even make sense saying it out loud. Like you eat off yeah. of one plate at a time, right? Yeah. But then you're going to spend three days doing dishes. So it's interesting. Exactly. It's, it goes back to the thing. Ask yourself what it would, this would look like if it were easy and then use your above average uh, problem solving skills because nonlinear thinking to come up with solutions. So I hate doing dishes too. What would it look like if it were easy? Well, if I had less dishes, I, I would have less dishes to do. If I got in the habit of cleaning my dish immediately after every single time I use it and I reinforce that habit, it would be a lot easier to do. If I got a girlfriend that liked doing dishes and I like to cook, it'd be a lot easier to do. If I paid someone to come in every few days a week and do all my dishes and do all my cleaning, it would be easier to do and then just choose the best option there or a multitude of all of them. And that's, you know, that applies to literally every aspect of life, not just dishes. But even also, it's like, then you come up with the objections. And this is, this is not just talking about dishes, but you come up with the objections and then you put on your objection hat, your devil's advocate hat. Well, what if I have people over, right? Then I'm going to need more dishes. Okay, cool. Put those dishes away from the kitchen and bring them out when those people come over. Easy peasy lemon squeezy, right? So I think that's the issue is people get caught up with problems, but they don't get caught up with problem solving. Absolutely. It's, it's kind of the old open shelf uh, dynamic, like having open shelves because people think that the key to organization is more containers when in fact it's less stuff. So yeah. when you can see out the sight, things out that mind. you... Out of sight, out of mind, I... I absolutely need like blank surfaces everywhere. If there's anything on a surface, it's clutter to me. I put everything in bins and I put them away. Absolutely. Um, this is a question that I I was reminded of when I was talking to Ryan Ayala. It kind of came about a little bit unintentionally, but what's the worst piece of advice you've ever been given? Um, shit. I used to be, I used to have uh, a lot of like, quote unquote mentors, not even mentors, just like people, like it was a lot of my professors, a lot of my professors, you know, I, um, I took a lot of advantage of the opportunities I had in school. And one of the biggest ones is, is uh, professor 
relationships, having them kind of in your corner, having them invested in your future. So going to class, making them know that, hey, listen, like this guy has something going for him and then leveraging their time outside of class. Um, but I think one of the worst pieces of advice I got from one of them, all of the worst advice came from mentors, which is why now I kind of like don't listen to anyone, um, which isn't good, but like it's how I operate and it's worked out well. I, I'm good at taking advice. I'm not good at taking uh, orders. Um, but anyway, one of the guys said, you know, you have to ride the coattails of what's hot. You have to take advantage of what's going on right now. And he wasn't entirely wrong. It was just the way that he placed it was wrong. He said, get into cryptocurrency, get into blockchain technology, get into technical fields like cybersecurity, because that is the, uh, that's the hot, that's a hot spot right now. Um, that was horrible advice because for my proclivity, I'm only going to be the best at something if I enjoy it and I'm having fun. And I'm doing that. And sure, maybe I'd make more money, um, but I'd be miserable, right? And I'd never be the best. And for me, my goal is not to have a bunch of money. My goal is to be the best version of myself, right? Uh, it's self-actualization. That's what 100 types pursue. They pursue mastery. They want to be the best. Um, so that was pretty awful advice. I think another piece of awful advice that I got was from another one of my professors slash mentors. And it, it came around a business opportunity. And for me, it was like, listen, this opportunity in and of itself is so valuable for me. I'm willing to do it for like, inc- like the, the partnership percentage would be like very much in the other person's favor because I am the beginner here. I, this guy is the veteran. He's been in the space. He holds all of the assets and I'm not going to hardball. Him. And that was my stance. And he's like, no, no, no. Like you need to quote unquote, know your worth. Like you need to do this. Like you need to come with these terms. And they were ridiculous terms. And I'm like, I don't want to do that. I just want to do this. Like pretty much pro bono. Anyway, I took his advice and the business plan fell through. The, the business opportunity fell through, which was probably going to be one of the biggest business opportunities that I've ever had. So that those both made me understand that my intuition is more valuable than anybody's advice. Additionally, it made me understand that the advice that someone gives is predicated off of their experiences and how they view the world. So I did not take an objective enough view of these people that I was taking advice from. And I didn't ask myself, would I trade places with these people, with the life that they live, with the person that they are? Do I want to be that person? Looking back at both of them, absolutely not. We had completely different objectives. We had completely different arcs. They, they valued structure. They valued stability. They valued utility and rationality. I valued spontaneity. I valued mobility. So all of the advice I was getting from them was just completely unrelated to who I was. And that was really, really important, realizing that you cannot take advice from people that you cannot trade places with, from people that aren't operating on the same wavelength as you. Now you can compartmentalize that. I'm going to take advice from an accountant on accounting, even though I don't want to be an accountant, but I compartmentalize that into that space, right? So I'm not going to take advice from an, from an accountant on how to like have better style or how to you know have a cool life. So that was the biggest t- takeaway I took from getting that horrible advice. I think Alex Hormozzi speaks on it somewhere along the lines of do not take advice from people that don't have what you want about how to get what you want. Ah, that's the better way of putting it for sure. Which is so clear and it's so true, but we have a tendency to do that for the exact reason that you just mentioned. It's kind of just the way that it's like we need to respect our elders and all this stuff. The thing that I am I have this, it's like a double-edged sword intuition because I believe that most people's intuitions are would mislead them because I don't think that they're at a place in their life where they can listen to it clearly um, or yeah. follow it clearly because they're, it's so clouded. What, yes. what would you say to that? Like how do you, how do you, 
recommend somebody get the space to be able to listen to their intuition. Cause I think a lot of people misconstrue or conflate intuition with some like fleeting, like emotion. They might, Oh, that's my intuition speaking. I need to do this. When in fact, it's just, it's not. Yeah. Well, first of all, hunter types have extreme super physiological intuition and just the fact of the matter can't explain it. A lot of it comes down to what I believe being a dysregulation in our frontal lobe you know, the executive functioning part of the brain that tells the rest of your brain what to do and is very rational. The other parts of our brain overpower that control center, right? So things are happening in our brain that we can't really rationalize, but they are, and they're leading us to conclusions. They're leading us to that gut instinct. So once I ever figured that out, I only listen to my intuition and it's never led me astray. Um, Every time I try to make an overly rational decision that I have a bad gut feeling about, it always goes wrong. So that's really important to notice. You also have to understand that it takes skill and practice to listen to your intuition. It may be there, but if you suppress it for years and years and years, because you're told to take things very rationally, you're not going to be able to decipher what it's going to say at all, right? You're going to be misconstrued. And additionally, it also comes down to like how fluid and how like really your health, right? It's called gut instinct for a reason. So I think a big factor of that is all of our guts are fucked, right? And that directly affects our vagus nerve. It directly affects the inflammation levels in our brain. So how are we supposed to listen? Like if you think of your intuition like a frequency and you think of all of these biological infractions as static, your intuition is still there, but it's completely mitigated by this static. So you need to remove that static. You need to fix your gut. You need to reduce brain inflammation. You need to get all of the shit out of your life that is quite literally impeding your ability to listen to your deepest core functioning from a cognitive and cerebral level. Because our intuition was around way before this rational part of our brain was developed, right? Reptiles have intuition, right? Like that part of the brain has been around forever. And, you know, this newly functioning executive aspect of our brain that determines rationality is very new. And it's still having a tough time grasping and understanding of the world that we live in. The gut instinct comment is, is profound. I've never thought about that either. It's called that for a reason. And, and I think it was Hippocrates, yeah. didn't he say that the gut is the like where all health starts or stems from or something like that. Yeah. 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 Root of all diseases, um, which is true, right? Because the gut was our first brain, our gastrointestinal system developed before it was obviously a lot more primitive, but it developed before the more mammalian aspects of our brain. Um, We know how correlated the brain and the gut is right. From even a neurotransmitter standpoint, we have like neurotransmitter signaling in more abundant levels in our gut and our other organs than our brain. There is no disconnection between all of our organs. All of our organs directly impact one another. If one is impeded, it's going to impede everywhere else. And I realized that because I used to have really bad gut issues. And whenever my gut would flare up, when my stomach would just hurt like crazy, my skin would break out, I'd have horrible anxiety, I'd have horrible brain fog. And I remember I was sitting on the toilet one day and I'm like, this, there's too much correlation for there not to be causation. So once I started fixing my gut, everything else fixed itself. Some of the most profound thoughts that have ever entered into a man's like realm have happened on the toilet. That's funny to hear you say That's something true. about it. Yeah. Dude. And I actually, you know what? I actually, I heard you talk to Ryan about that. You don't bring your phone in the, in the bathroom. Yeah. That's, I don't think like, actually- I, I do that for a number of reasons. Um, but I think it's just such an easy way. Cause once you're on the toilet, you're stuck. You can't have that impulse to go and grab it. So yeah, I like no phone in my bathroom. I try to not bring my phone in my bedroom. I try to always do a few walks every day without my phone as well. It's just like creating boundaries you know, to the point where you make the decision. And once the decision's made, you can't backtrack on it, right? Because I can't backtrack on my phone if I don't bring it with me on a walk. Yeah. And I, I was speaking to Ryan about this as well, because you mentioned the environment and the importance of curating environment, which is kind of stems or stems back to the minimalism. 
for a long time, I thought it was a cope that I, that I felt like I needed to create environments that made decisions for me. I was like, Oh, if I was really disciplined, then I wouldn't have to do that. If I had real discipline, then I could look at a, a cake or whatever, even though I really want a cake and not eat it, et cetera. So I think that that's what you just mentioned. The bathroom is kind of a microcosm of, of that example um, of creating environments that make decisions for you, especially being a hunter type. Yeah. Well, with hunter types, like willpower doesn't work for us, right? Like there's certain levels where willpower works for us, but a majority of everything that I do, I do because I want to, I just have this innate drive, right? That's what innately drives me to not eat junk food. That's what innately drives me to go to the gym and train harder than everybody. Now, even if willpower was an issue, sure, it's, it would be great if you could do what you wanted to do, regardless of your external environment. But why would you when it's just so much easier to change where you live? And it makes every single aspect of life easier. And it just make, it makes you more aligned, right? Like that's like a fish living on land and being like, fuck this, like, I don't need water, right? Like, why, why would I need water? Like, I can live wherever I want. It's like, well, you'd be a lot better given the fact that you have gills, right? Given the fact that that is how you are built up biologically to be in your ideal environment. So why would us as hunters not want to live in our ideal environment? Why would we be shooting ourselves in the foot quite literally because of some argument around willpower? So, you know, I think that's the kind of masochistic aspect of health that only gets you so far. And me as being someone who like is pretty hard on myself and who is pretty masochistic, realizing that it doesn't get you far at all. It causes too much conflict. It causes too much turmoil. Let me just go back to my default mode of operating, which is just asking myself what, the, what this would look like if it were easy and then testing it. So, I mean, hey, I operate better in the jungle. I operate better when I'm walking around shirtless, shoeless uh, on a motorcycle, right? It's cooler. Life's yeah. cooler. It makes doing things that I have to do a lot easier and also makes me realize that a lot of things that I thought I had to do, I don't actually have to do at all. So true. And Kind of on the opposite hand of the worst advice, the, the way I want to pose this question is, I was told it was the million dollar question, so I always like asking it. What would you, what do you know now that you wish you knew when, right as you were leaving college? Mm, I think the biggest thing is like, I knew that my, my original intuitions were correct. When I was 16, I was very hard-nosed, I was very oppositionally defiant, and I knew what life I wanted to live. And you're constantly dissuaded from that. You're told you're wrong. You're told that you're a dreamer. I was told that. He's like, no, you're a dreamer. So one of the mentors that gave me horrible advice, which now I can, you know, quite literally flex on him. Like, hey, you know, you said that I was committing career suicide. You said that, you know, I was going to waste all of my potential if I didn't like go down the startup realm. Well, look at me now. Like I'm doing everything I said I'm going to do better. Um, but anyway, I, th I think the biggest thing that I wish I knew coming out of college that's a tough question. Um, I'm trying to think what I was doing coming out of college. Yeah, it's, it's a, I'll, I'll give you some time to think. It's definitely a, I was told by a, a mental coach that came in and talked with our baseball team about like, if you ever get the chance to speak with somebody that's in a, in a position that you want to be in or, um, just want to get somebody's advice, ask them that because it really is the million dollar question in terms of advice. Cause it's, it almost has, it forces you, this is why it's a tough question. I think it forces the recipient of the question to delineate all the advice that they've been given yeah. into like the most summarized version. I think the biggest thing is like, really trust your gut. If you have a good understanding of your gut, there's going to be people telling you to do certain things. You need to learn how to be very particular about who you take advice from your locus of advice needs to be very small. And 
I think I did everything right out of college, uh, even though a lot of things that I did were wrong. It was what I needed to do. I worked really, really, really hard. I really committed to reinventing myself. I committed to gaining skills and knowledge. And I essentially acquired four years of experience in like eight months. So I think that was really important. I think having a beeline to the life that you want to live as soon as possible, because the worst thing that can happen is you have this ideal in your head that if I get to this point, then I'll be happy. Right. But that point, given the traditional structure, is not going to come until a decade down the road. So imagine dragging your feet for 10 years because you feel like you have to, working a job you hate because you feel like you have to, to get somewhere that you don't even know if it's going to be the right place or not for you. If you beeline to that immediately, one of two things will happen. It will be the thing that makes you happy, which is great. You figure that part out. Now on to the next one. Or you'll realize that it's not the thing that's going to make you happy. So you can cross it off and you stop worrying about it completely. I think that's the most important thing. And that's something that I did. I probably could have done it a little bit sooner, but COVID made it difficult. But um, yeah, like I, I think that's the biggest thing. It's like, what is this ideal you have in your head? What would be the easiest path to getting you there in the next six months? Phenomenal. I think that's great advice. Um, I, I just got, I don't know how much time you got. Because um, this is like we've mentioned, it's a very hunter type. <laughs> Literally, it's like, hey, you ready in 30? All right, cool. Um, yeah, both have bad Wi-Fi and shit, 15, but I got some time. Good deal. Um, what are some books or resources that you would give to a hunter type? Mm, it's a good question. Mastery by Robert Greene. I think that's really important. Uh, Range, why generalists triumph in a specialized world. That's a really good one as well. Um, if you're into marketing, Seth Godin is, is a really incredible resource that very much aligns with, I, I think the way that we think, um, what are some other ones as well? I would recommend, you know, the hunter farmer hypothesis by Tom Hartman, a lot of good resources on that online. Um, what are some other books that really had an impact on me? The one thing I think you have to kind of brainwash yourself into being obsessed with these North star metrics, identifying those one things. That's a really good one as well. And there's another one that I'm, I don't. You mentioned Blue on. Ocean a couple of times. Is that not a is that a a book? Correct. Yeah, that's a book. That, that's a worthwhile book. I, I used to be really big into the business books, um, but yeah, Blue Ocean Strategy is good. I think you can watch a YouTube video on it as well. And this is something people have to realize about books. The reason that books are so long and drawn out with case studies is because they have to justify being put into print. No publisher is going to want to publish a thirty-page book, even though all of that information could be synthesized in thirty pages. It could be synthesized into an article. A blog post. So the best thing to do and what I personally do a lot is I'll read books, right? Mainly that's because I like cultivating the practice of reading because it's boring to me. Um, but what I typically do is I'll just find like three different summaries of the book from three different people and they will all bring out what they think is the most important. So I get three different perspectives on it. And then I'll go and I'll listen to a podcast from the author talking about that book during his pre-launch hype up. And that gives me a way better viewpoint than actually reading the book in and of itself. So that's something just to keep in mind. Books are unnecessarily long for the sake of being unnecessarily long. Let me, uh, where's my phone? I'm actually gonna go through Audible because I definitely have some good ones. Oh, Way of the Superior Man. That is- Never read that, but really, I've heard about that from several people. Yeah, that is really like the, uh, quite a needle mover book. Yeah, so Jocko Willink talks about this as well. He's obviously read hundreds of books specifically for his podcast and just being a scholar. What he does- he reads the first page of a book, he reads the middle, and he reads the end. Mm. And that takes him, takes him, I don't know, 10, 15 minutes. And then he's like, okay, I want to dive into it a little more. And then he does. If those three pages don't do anything, because that's pretty much the meat of the, the, the content, then he's like, okay, put it on the shelf or, or get rid of it. Yeah. 
that, that's kind of the reality of it. I haven't tried that approach, um, but I think that still stands like that approach where a lot Do of you have fun. any fiction or any like yeah. any any novels. I don't I don't read fiction, to be honest. It just it never has done it for me. I've tried. Um, there's some good like old school fiction books that I like. I really like Animal Farm. Um, I read that. I typically used to read fiction before I went to bed. Uh, it was so boring. It would literally make me fall asleep. But <laughs> have you ever read Masashi? Uh, yes, actually, I do like uh, Book of Five Rings. Um, I like anything relating to like Japanese Bushido culture in particular. So that one was definitely a good one. Um, I really like Sapiens. People shit on Sapiens. I think Sapiens is an incredible book. Uh, the story of the human body. We actually had an interaction about that. Probably, yeah. We had an interaction in your Telegram about that because I, I commented about Sapiens being a solid resource for uh, how the agricultural revolution changed something. And somebody was like, somebody basically just shat on the book and you actually chimed in and said, false, like Sapiens is a great resource as with everything. It should be taken into context and all that stuff. But I, I enjoyed yeah. it. You know, I think that's such a classic way that people approach things where they're told something's bad because of some overarching thing. And then they just take it at face value because people don't like going into depth. They don't like thinking for themselves. They'd much rather have someone else tell them how to think, right? That's why, you know, the 10 commandments is so convenient because it's just like, ah, there's just 10 commandments that I need to follow, right? Everybody wants that bulleted list that if I do this, I'll live a good life, right? If I do this, I don't have to craft my own identity, which is very difficult. I'd rather take it from someone else. So yeah, I mean, that's the reality of things. Same with people, everyone shits on eating bugs. You know, they shit on eating bugs because the World Economic Forum wants you to eat bugs, but they don't delineate the objective and the reasoning behind why they want you to eat bugs and the actual nutritional value of bugs to begin with. They don't realize that the reason we like crunchy foods like potato chips is because we evolved to eat bugs and crustaceans because they were the easiest thing to eat. So I, I think it's just like a lot of non-deep thinking, which most people uh, are very proficient in, not thinking deeply, they're very shallow thinkers. But uh, yeah, I think you know, so. I, that's why it's important to come to your own conclusions. Never tie your identity too deeply with any given field of thought. If you want to be an original thinker, that's going to require you to have original ideas and take everything from first principles and come to your own conclusions. Yeah, well, that's how you become an ideologue. Like when you get so obsessed and identify so heavily with an idea that the idea becomes more important than the end goal of the idea in the first place, if that makes sense. That's spot on. Yeah, don't be an ideologue. That's for sure. The, uh, the last question, dude, I, I, I ask everyone this because it really is the spirit of the podcast. Tyro means novice or beginner and uh -huh. stems from the Latin, Latin word meaning young soldier. And the, when I was coming up with the name of the podcast and starting to form the podcast, this word kind of I, – I like to think that it was brought to me. Like God kind of showed me this word because it adequately described where I was at uh, more than any word I, I found. The way that I think about it is a Tyro is somebody that's in an arena. The arena for you is going to be different than the arena for me and from John and, and Missy. Um, you're in an arena, you're picking up your sword and you're going to fight because that's really what life's about. It's fighting for, for the, the arena of life that you're in. I'm curious, what is that arena for you? What is the fight for you? That is such a good question. And first of all, I love fighting. I love the concept of fighting. I think just picturing me going into an arena, like I would so love to be a gladiator back in the day. I, I just, it, it's a natural human desire. It's a natural male desire to want to fight. It really is. And we're told not to. We're told it's bad. We're told it's bad that you want to go around and you want to size everybody up, right? That you want to fight your friends. It's not bad. It's, it's just core to who we are. And it, and it creates dangerous men. Um, but anyway, I think the thing for me, the thing that I've always pursued above all else 
is just trying to figure this thing out, right? Trying to figure life out. And, you know, I think a lot of that is because I was so conflicted as a kid, right? Like I said, like, I was like, life is so boring, you know? It was just always like, this is so boring. It was so melan- melancholistic. So I think the thing for me, it's like, what does it mean to live a good life? Like, how can I just be happy? How can I be fulfilled? How can I live in a way that makes me feel fulfilled, for lack of a better term? And I'm constantly digging into that, right? That's why I'm going like, ah, oh, it's more on the biological side. It's more on the community side. It's more on the, the, the work and relationship side. And now what I realize is that it's this culmination of pillars. So what I'm trying to figure out is how can I extend all of these pillars to the maximum capacity? So I'm really just like, I always wanted to be like a renaissance man. I always wanted to be the, the most well-rounded person in the world. You know, probably the guy that's been the most inspirational for me is that guy from the Dos Equis commercials, the most interesting man in the world. That is the guy that I've looked up to. And, you know, I think that guy is like quite like a real man. Um, but like being that person, it's always been interesting to me. I've, I've always hated the idea of getting pigeonholed. I've hated the idea of being stuck as one role. And I refuse because it's specialization is for insects. So I, I really just want to be, I want to have the best understanding of the human condition. And, you know, what does it mean to be human? What does it mean to be, you know, we're all different humans. Obviously we have this biospecificity, but I think for me, like, that's really what I'm looking for is like, what, what is my role in this world? And like, what is everybody's role? And like, how can we self-actualize? Self-actualization was a word that I came down to a lot uh, from Nietzsche, right? Nietzsche was big about the Ubermensch, the overman, the man above men. And that's really always been my pursuit. And it's obsessive. It's, it overpowers any other worldly pursuit of goods, of money, of status, of anything. Like I'm willing to kind of search the ends of the earth, ends of the earth for figuring out what that is. That's a phenomenal answer. And I, I thank you for sharing that. I'm, I'm reminded of two things. Number one is uh, Ryan Ayala answered that question in a similar way. He said the arena of life that he's in is life itself. And yeah. more or less, that's oh, kind of what you're describing. Yeah, well, yeah, he's an articulate dude, man. I, I really enjoyed speaking with him. And he sp- he spoke very highly of you as well. Um, I love him. He's, he's incredibly thoughtful. He's incredibly or like, he's just really on top of his shit. 100 percent and and he's absolutely killing the podcast game right now too so it's cool to see the the thought that i'm reminded of is when he answered it that way we were discussing something but i I had this kind of realization the human condition is not unique the circumstances with which we experience it are so like the human condition as a whole is entirely shared like we all share that so what it sounds like to me is that you're trying to figure out that condition and how it applies to the context of your life which is a worthy battle, I would say. If I can figure it out for myself, I can help people figure it out for themselves as well. And that's something I realized, you know, in my like really deep psychology and philosophy, like rabbit hole obsession, my hyper-focus after college was that every single problem that a modern human has is the same problem that humans have been having since the beginning of time, since prehistory. You go back to every single book in the Bible, you go back to every single story from any culture, it's always the same struggles. Like it's always the same challenge. It's always the same battle, right? Like you rise up, you, you know, like Jordan Peterson talks about this. It's like the same, it's the same arc. It's the same character arc. So we're all going through it. The context is just different. Yeah, absolutely. That's, that's more or less what I meant um, in a more articulate way that the human condition is, is not unique. Like we, we like to think, especially in today's world, like, oh, well, our ancestors didn't have to deal with this. Um, it must've been nice back when we were hunters and gatherers, but yeah, they had to actually get food to live. <laughs> like, yeah. We don't know what that's like. You know what I mean? 
Um, yeah, but the, exactly. the other, the other quote that I'm reminded of, and I mentioned this relatively recently, it's so profound and it applies exactly what you just said in terms of figuring it out for yourself so that you can give it to the world. The quote is, I'm going to butcher it. Do not do what the world asks of you, but rather do what makes you come alive because what the world needs is for more people to come alive. Ooh. Who, who, who said that? You know, it, my, my buddy will mentioned it on one of the early episodes. I'll, I'll send you a, a message. I can't remember exactly who said it, but I'll, I'll find it. That was such a banger. I think that was, that was always my thing that I always, it was like, there was some, I don't know if it was a quote or if it just was like something that like a conceptualization, but it's like, I, I never wanted to take over the world. I just want to like cut my own sliver out of it. You know, like I think a lot of people who want to take over the world. They do so out of like some chip on their shoulder. I, I think for me, it's like, I just, I want like my little piece of it. You know, I don't care about the rest of it. I just want my own. 100%. And I think that stems like the, the tribalism, like, a lot of Native Americans, I've read Bury, Bury My Heart at Wounded Knee and a couple of other American Indian novels or stories. Um, that's what those tribes wanted, dude. They just wanted their piece of land that they that they didn't even think they owned, but like the land that they lived with. And they wanted to be left the fuck alone. They didn't care about what the tribes up in uh, the other corner of the, the country were doing. You know, they just wanted to do what they were doing and continue to doing it, continue doing it to the best of their abilities. So I think that that's probably the most apropos way to wrap up a topic about hunter hunter types is is that exact point yeah well that's awesome man i, I appreciate you digging into the hunter type aspect it's something that not we don't i don't talk about a lot on podcasts but i want to because i think that's just the biggest needle mover in my opinion of like what can i what is the unique perspective that i can offer and it's not supplements it's not biohacking it's not like figuring out how to live like a nomadic lifestyle it's like figuring out this unique genotype this unique neurological type of being a hunter. Yeah, man. And I, I, perhaps most people don't have a podcast and are, are blessed to be able to tell you in person or uh, like while speaking to you, but I really do want to thank you for the way that you've articulated it and also sharing it because I really do mean it, that it's been instrumental in, in me understanding myself and how to best leverage it in, in, in the world and, Many of your tweets are bookmarked on my on my Twitter for that exact reason because they've been paradigm shifters. So I, I really appreciate it. That means the world, man. That's that's exactly what I'm doing it for to hear stuff like that. Yeah, brother. Well, I also appreciate you getting on and um, taking the time, dude. This was a really really enjoyable conversation. Likewise, man. Thank you for having me, Nolan. I appreciate it. Great questions, by the way. Thank you, brother. I appreciate you. And with that, I hope you all enjoyed the conversation with Noah. Noah has such unique and nuanced perspectives. And he delivers it in a really unique and personal tone. So it's really digestible and it's really, really helped me and been instrumental in me uh, changing the paradigm that I look at my own temperament through. So it was a real honor to sit down with him and kind of chop shop and get a better understanding of who he is and what he's about. Connect with Noah on Twitter and Instagram at Noah Ryan Co. That's N-O-A-H-R-Y-A-N-C-O. And listen to the Noah Ryan podcast at, on Spotify and check out his free telegram at the link in the show notes. Thank you for being a part of the Tyro experience. Until next time, stand firm in the arena.